Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Layton and also our associate producer, McKenna Langley, working behind the scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll talk a little off-price by looking ahead at Macy's expanding their backstage concept. We'll also talk Ollie's Bargain Outlet in our news segment, and we'll look briefly at a story involving two warehouse club retailers. In our second segment of the show, we'll have the privilege of looking back on four of our favorite retail books from the last couple of years. A quick reminder that you can access us on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter, where Leighton curates a selection of news stories on Twitter and pictures on Instagram to post involving retail. This week's episode brought to you by Inside the Mind and Hashtag Paid. We'll talk about each one of them later on in the show. But in news, we cycle back to discuss one of the fastest growing retailers in the U.S., Ollie's Bargain Outlet, not a retailer we've discussed for over a year. And particularly with the apparel off-price sector of late, we've talked about how retailers are seeing that supply chain woes for other retailers, full-price retailers, have meant a glut of potential deals for buyers for the off-pricers. And Ollie's in the recent past has said more or less the same. And in their case, they kind of need the deals due to their rapidly growing footprint. They were one of the retailers that, if you think back to the Toys R Us closures, really benefited from those because they moved into a number of former Toys R Us locations in Texas and other markets, specifically in the Southern Plains and the Southern Midwest. In fact, they opened a Texas distribution center recently just to serve that Southern expansion. So sourcing product has been of utmost importance. In fact, they ended the most recent fiscal year with 431 stores in 29 states, which is a vast change from when they were considered a mid-Atlantic regional retailer just a decade ago and had about half the number of stores just five, six years ago when they first became a publicly traded company. But this past year, they saw an increase in store count of over 10% during this past fiscal year. They expect to expand by over 10% for the coming year. However, despite product sourcing, despite their brick-and-mortar growth in terms of their fourth-quarter numbers, things were not as rosy. And to be clear, they expected a bit of a decline from 2020's fourth quarter, but there was still a lot of turbulence in 2021's fourth quarter for them. They more or less matched analyst expectations. Actually, a slight beat there, posting earnings per share of $0.69 versus the $0.68 expected. And the positive beat on earnings came against a backdrop of falling comps. They anticipated a pullback from 2020, and that's exactly what we got. Fourth quarter comps were down 10.5% across their store base for stores open more than one year. And granted, they were cycling a very large increase from 2020, but even still, they posted a 2% drop in comps from the fourth quarter of 2019 on a dollar basis, a 1.7% drop from 2019 on a stack basis. As a result of all these dropping comps, the new store openings and expansion of footprint wasn't able to push net sales into the positive. Net sales year over year fell 2.8% for the fourth quarter. The falling comps were 
roughly in line with what they saw the rest of the fiscal year. This finished off their fiscal year. Comps were down 11.1% for the year. Net sales were down 3.1%. Positive news, I guess, generally speaking, costs remain the same on a per-store basis, but unfortunately for the company, deleveraging saw their overall margin reduced. Management cited a number of headwinds during the quarter, most of which we've heard plenty about from other retailers. They included what CEO John Swigert called unprecedented inflation in merchandise and transportation costs, and of course the shipping delays that are causing product to become available for them. Additionally, due to logistics issues, once product was onboarded into the Ollie system, as in once it arrived at the distribution centers there, they actually saw backlogs at the distribution centers internally, so this caused a delay in product hitting shelves. Specifically, this impacted seasonal products, so it delayed seasonal product hitting their shelves in their stores. And given the shopping cadence moving forward during 2021's holiday season, a fact we talked about in the fourth quarter and during the fourth quarter, that was a recipe for subpar seasonal sales because product was hitting the shelves too late for these early shoppers. And so Ollie's was kind of banking on a flush of last minute shoppers to counter this. And they said as much on this call, but that flush of last minute shoppers never really materialized as most of the shoppers were already done shopping by October and November, at least those that were customers with Ollie's. Now the supply chain issues take in that they delayed products getting to shelves at Ollie's stores. They also gave to Ollie's as they are seeing some benefit from the overarching supply chain clogs that other off-pricers are also seeing the benefit from. They also noted package changes due to inflation and canceled orders from full-priced retailers causing product to become available as these full-priced retailers attempt to adjust to this inflationary environment. So changes in package sizes driving more product towards Ollie's direction. Product innovation also has driven more deals their way. They say lines of product have been getting replaced, and so this gives their buyers a chance to jump on some of the older product there. Now, Ollie's as a company fully expects deal flow from canceled merchandise in particular to continue and benefit them during fiscal 22. And they also said deal flow is strong in HBA, housewares, hardware, bed and bath, automotive, pets, and holiday seasonal. In other words, there are a lot of categories here where there's product available. We know housewares deal flow for off-pricers has been good, particularly for TJX as they mentioned it, but it seems basically every category across the board is experiencing extra product on the market. Maybe you filter food and consumables out of that, but generally speaking, especially when you look at categories that are hot categories like pets, for example, Maybe a positive, especially in the back half of this next year, for Ollie's. And like the off-pricers that we've talked about on the show before, Ollie's, they expect that as customers become more price-sensitive outside of grocery in this inflationary environment, they'll increasingly turn to off-price stores like Ollie's for value. And they talked about this quite a bit on the call, and it made me wonder, because we've talked about big lots, of course, and their pivot away from the treasure hunt ideal. And you kind of wonder if this is going to harm them, at least in the near term, if this is truly the case, if you truly have people looking towards off-pricers because they're more price conscious. Because Big Lots isn't super competitive on price compared to the larger general merchandisers like Walmart or Dollar General, at least regarding consumables and seasonal. 
And also, these price-sensitive consumers probably aren't in the market for a lot of durable goods like, for example, furniture, which is really where Big Lots has been cutting its teeth over the past few years. So you wonder if that company in particular might be in for a little bit of a hurt as most of their treasure hunt products or essentially off-price products, under 15% of the number of SKUs that they carry overall in Big Lots stores. But Back to Ollie's, let's look at their 2022 plan here. And one of the more interesting things I thought about their 2022 plan, I didn't know this, I'll be honest, they've never embarked on a store remodel program in the company's history. They're changing that for this coming year. And some might look at their 40-year history, or at least they turned 40 later on this year, and wonder why a remodel program hadn't already been implemented. If you visited Ollie's stores some of the older ones in particular, they have a penchant for all being widely different. Store sizes ranging from about 25,000 square feet for some of the newer ones to nearly 100,000 square feet. Different layouts and so forth. I've been to some older Ollie stores, first generation Ollie stores, if you want to call them that, that are certainly pushing that 100,000 square foot mark. Ultimately, they're looking at streamlining things. It's tough to have the same planogram when your locations are so diverse, but what they want to do is maybe trim back the square footage or the selling footprint of some categories like books, for example, in these older stores, replace them with other higher traffic categories. Now, ultimately, you figure any remodel program has the potential to entice customers, their existing customers, to increase basket size. And that's what they're wanting to do, especially in some of their older stores. Some of the larger square footage ones don't have racetracks around the outer edge. They're built a little bit differently than their prototype stores of today. So they're going to install the racetracks in some of the older stores, reconfigure the front end in those stores as well to make sure there's queues around the register, give you an additional place to sell merchandise there, especially those impulse buys. As yet, though, they said they don't have enough remodels currently in the books to provide any data on comp effects those remodels might have. They, in fact, have just finished two to this point. They're planning on 30 stores overall for 2022 remodels, and the idea is to learn from it and scale up big time in 2023 and beyond. So maybe start with some of the stores most in need of the refresh and also another point that I thought was interesting is after they were asked about it on the call, they said that each remodel really will be pretty reasonable in terms of cost. Most of the adjustment is going to be to fixtures and such. So they're really just moving around fixtures in the store, changing the overall layout. So they figure their average spend should be around $125,000 per store, and they're going to adjust the process as they go. So in retail parlance, when you're talking about renovations, $125,000 per store. Pretty reasonable cost when you're looking at renovations. Some of the other aspects and looking forward at 2022, they expect to return to some semblance of normalcy in terms of the forecasts in the back half of the year. They think the first couple of quarters are still going to be a little bit dicey, a little bit up and down, but they're projecting that as macro trends improve, they'll fall in line with kind of their overall long-term growth plan, what they call their long-term algorithm. As a result, they more or less project a comp sales increase for the full year between flat sales and 1% comp increases. Now, 
This would lag inflation and indicate falling unit sales given that management noted on the call, and they've noted this before, the need to increase prices, increase product margins as well to offset distribution center costs. We've talked about the new Texas distribution center. They're expanding other distribution centers. They're also seeing increased logistics costs, as every retailer is. So they're passing on some of those increases to the consumer. Given that fact, you figure a lower number of actual items leaving the door at Ollie's. The comp numbers do look slightly better when you view them through the lens of their expected comp declines in the first quarter. They predict declines of 14 to 15 percent. This is due to lapping the stimulus we saw in the first quarter of 2020. And Ollie's expects their bottom line to shrink for this coming year. Expectations of adjusted net income for 136 to 140 million. This number just a couple of years ago in 2020 was over 240 million for the full year, just to kind of give you an example of how things have fallen off due to that deleveraging of sales over the last couple of years. Regardless of sales progressions in existing stores, though, they are seeking to open another 46 to 48 new stores, add a couple of relocations in there. We kind of alluded to this in the introduction, but looking at growing their store base once again by over 10%. This is part of their overarching CapEx program that includes the relocations, the renovations. Overall, you're looking at 53 to $58 million Ollie's seeking to spend in the coming year. Thanks to the new stores, they see net sales increasing for the year. Despite those comps being more or less flat, they expect net sales to rise to just over $1.9 billion dollars. They also plan on expanding a Pennsylvania distribution center, which they hope will alleviate some of those distribution centers they saw, particularly in the fourth quarter of 2021 that we talked about with the seasonal merchandise. Now, a fun thing to end here and and probably just a throwaway note if you're more concerned about the business operations of Ollie's, but they're bringing back their America's biggest cheapskate competition for the first time since they became publicly traded actually the first time in 15 years overall, basically just asking customers to submit entries, telling the company why they're America's biggest cheapskate. I would anticipate an entry or two from Layton as we go forward and as they update that program. Well, that'll do it for our news segment. Coming up after this, as we mentioned, we'll look back to interviews detailing four of our favorite books regarding retail released in the past couple of years. A recent interview we had with Joel Bynes got us thinking about our favorite retail literature over the past few years, and we'll detail some of that and revisit interviews with some of the authors right after this. This week's podcast, once again, brought to you by another podcast, a podcast called Inside the Mind. This podcast, I feel like, is interesting because it literally, quite literally, delves into the minds of consumers from groups that I think are very easy to ignore from the outside looking in. And so the shows include interviews with real shoppers in a variety of retail and consumer sectors. It's mixed with analysis and insights. Greg Portell and Katie Thomas host it. It's produced by Carney, one of the original management consulting firms. And when I say groups that might be a little bit overlooked from the outside, I'm talking about cosplayers 
as one example. Sneakerheads as another. That was certainly the example I mentioned on last week's show. I think more germane to what we're seeing in 2022, they interview dog lovers and discover really what makes them not only so passionate about dogs, but really what drives their purchase decisions and their identification within that group. I think it's very interesting. If you're interested in retail, if you're interested in today's customer, it is a must listen. Certainly something that I have added to my list of podcasts that I have automatically downloading. You can listen to brand new episodes of Carney's Inside the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And as a bonus, we've got a link directly to the Apple Podcasts version of Inside the Mind in our show notes. week, we wanted to do something a little bit different with our interview segment. You know, we're very fortunate to be able to speak with a lot of authors surrounding retail books before the books come out and get advanced copies of these books, review these books and so forth. And we were talking with Joel Bynes a few weeks ago. He was the author of the new book, The Retail Economy. A few of us got to talking and we felt like it was pertinent to maybe talk about the books that we've discussed on the show over the last couple of years, in addition to the retail economy that we feel like are really worth checking out. And we begin with a book that honestly should be written more often than it is. It's a book by Alan Payne, and it's called Built to Fail, which chronicles blockbusters growth in the late 80s and early 90s, unsustainable growth all the way to their eventual bankruptcy and closure of the vast majority of their retail stores, the way his book differs from others, is he had a first-person view at what was going on inside Blockbuster because he spent over 31 years in the movie rental business, 25 of those at Blockbuster. And we asked him why it was important or why he felt it was important to tell this story about Blockbuster. I think that what motivated me to tell it for the most part, I believe, was if you ask anybody today why Blockbuster failed, most all of them will tell you it was Netflix, of course. And by Netflix, they usually mean Netflix, the streaming business. And what I want everybody to understand is that Blockbuster was in deep, deep financial trouble even before Netflix was founded. And it was in much more trouble before Netflix ever streamed a movie. So I wanted to make sure that the story got corrected because that's not what happened to Blockbuster. Blockbuster did not fail because Netflix beat them with streaming. Blockbuster was a broken company before Netflix ever streamed a movie. So I really believed I was in a unique position to tell the story because I was there for virtually the entire life of the company. And in a franchise company, we get a, the franchisees get a unique opportunity to see the insides because we're running the same business they are. And anytime they do something different, we get a window into what their thinking is and why they're doing it. And I'll say this, the franchise group, we always had a productive working relationship with Blockbuster. They were open about what they were doing, why they were doing it. In the case of our company, we just didn't agree with much of anything that they did. But we always had a good dialogue about it. So all those years that that went on, I got a real good understanding of how they ran the business and 
I can remember not much more than just frustration at how they did it. So it was real illuminating to me to go back after all those years and try to connect all the dots. And it became pretty clear that it could have been a much different story had Blockbuster approached the business differently. And I think probably the best way to illustrate that is that Netflix, when they started, they were renting DVDs too. They were just doing it through the mail. And Netflix was never as big a company as Blockbuster renting DVDs. Blockbuster was multiple times larger than Netflix ever became in renting DVDs. Yet Netflix is the one that successfully transitioned renting DVDs to streaming. Blockbuster was a much, much bigger company doing the same thing through stores. Why couldn't they have transitioned their stores to streaming just the same way that Netflix transitioned their by mail business to streaming? I don't see any reason that Blockbuster couldn't have done that, but they never positioned themselves to do it. One of the things that he noted in the book was that when he was part of a company called Video Central, he noticed some weaknesses in the Blockbuster system. And so when he became part of the Blockbuster company or within the Blockbuster fold, he noted some ways in which Blockbuster struggled to keep up with other operators. And we asked him about those things. One thing I noticed right away is that, you know, coming from a company like HEB, we were so focused on competition regardless of how large they were. And it's a cutthroat industry, as you know. And you pay attention to everybody and you pay attention to detail. And I think everybody in the grocery business knows that if you're going to succeed long term, you've got to be totally focused and just passionate about the business. When I got to Blockbuster, what I found was there was no passion about the business. There was passion about opening stores and making money, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of interest in understanding the details and intricacies of how the business worked. And even though I came from a company that was a grocery company, I got to Blockbuster expecting that they would have developed their management information systems better than we had in a grocery company. What I found is that they hadn't that most of the information that I was used to having ready access to to run the Video Central stores at HEB, Blockbuster didn't have them. Their entire back office management system was unbelievably archaic. And I had to find ways to work around it to get the data that I needed to run our stores, our franchise stores. So that was the most revealing part and that they had no interest at all in the way we ran our stores. And we knew that they were extremely successful against Blockbuster because as I say in the book, we got the information out of their trash. We knew how we were doing against them. And we knew that the stores that Blockbuster had that were competing against us were doing about half of their average. And we were doing two to three times more sales than they were. But I later find out that they had themselves convinced that we weren't making much money because we were a grocery company. They thought that we were making about two or three cents on the dollar, which was completely bogus. I just found a company that was, you could call it arrogant, you can call it hubris, you can call it a lot of things, but they just didn't have much interest in the business and whatever anybody else thought about the business. They didn't know, want to know anything about how we ran the business at HEB. And as it turned out, the company that bought our stores at HEB because Blockbuster wasn't interested, turned out to be Hollywood Video. Hollywood Video had copied our business model. 
they only had about 15 stores at the time they bought our 30 plus stores at HEB. They took the company public and within about five years had opened almost a thousand stores and Blockbuster was cash flow negative. And that really was Blockbuster's first big miss. Uh, later misses were Netflix and Redbox and all the others that most people are most familiar with. But that miss was in the early 90s when they could have learned everything that they needed to know about Hollywood video because they ran the same business we did, but they just totally ignored what we were doing. Now, Built to Fail is still available, of course, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Hit the top 150 in corporate governance and entertainment industry in terms of the Amazon ratings. And it's got a ton of ratings on Amazon, the vast, vast majority of which are five-star ratings. I found it a must-purchase book because these type of stories regarding maybe retail failure aren't told enough and we can learn so much from them. involved in marketing, you know that a lot of times, especially new methods of marketing, can be tricky. And they're tricky for a variety of reasons. One of these methods of marketing that can provide obstacles into really leveraging it to its fullest is influencer marketing. And there's reasons for that. It's pretty risky. Most of the time, it's not measurable. And some people just don't like dealing with the influencers. And our partner this week, Hashtag Paid understands that. They are the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 Crowd because they understand this. And they help businesses not by using influencers, but by using content creators. And I'm talking quality content creators. And they're doing this and they're helping brands build their online reputation and sell products. They make it very easy for brands, retailers, whoever to test this channel. When you get onto Hashtag Paid's platform, you can pick from a short list of creators, a curated list of creators, and you can watch those creators make you and your marketing team look like geniuses. And the best part is you can pick creators that jive with your target audience and your target objectives. They promise you'll never have to spend time searching for influencers or haggling with them about compensation. You'll never have influencers emailing you three months after a campaign's run asking for additional compensation. And the best part, you'll never be left in the dark on performance. You'll know exactly what performance looks like. It all starts at $499 and our podcast listeners get $500 of free working spend on your first campaign. So go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail. That's dot H-A-S-H-T-A-G-P-A-I-D.com slash retail and receive $500 off your first campaign. So remember, this starts at $499. You get $500 of free working spend on your first campaign. That is a deal you cannot pass up. If you work in marketing out there, if you own your own retail business, any of those things, check them out, hashtag paid. And as always, the link to the promotion is in our show notes. Now, our listeners know we love discussing commercial real estate, especially as it pertains to retail on the show. But what about industrial real estate? 
as it pertains to retail. Well, we were happy to be joined on the show by Justin Smith. He's a senior vice president with Lee and Associates, but he wrote the book Industrial Intelligence, the Executive's Guide for Making Informed Commercial Real Estate Decisions. Now, that's a mouthful, but ultimately the book talks about, from a retail perspective, what to do in terms of looking at decisions that should frame where you purchase or where you rent industrial real estate. So we asked him a little bit about his background and what led to the writing of this book. My focus for this past 17 years has been purely on industrial from the tenant's perspective, from the landlord's perspective, and for capital markets and investment sales. And I've noticed that our worlds with industrial and retail, right, continue to overlap to a greater degree as time goes by. And then for the book, the book is all about what tenants need to know and how to run a process from A to Z when you're looking for a new building, when you're looking to extend your contract with your existing building, and then some of the vendors you meet along the way that can help you in different parts of it. It was interesting to think through things like third-party logistics and like site selection and automation, right? Those are all things that we see in retail and industrial. So to explore those even to a greater degree and then understand how those overlap has also been interesting to continue to explore as new technology emerges, adoption becomes wider, and then just with e-commerce maturing. It's a great time to be in all of these markets, and it's a great time just in like the current development with new technologies and new processes. I think it's exciting to share that with you and to explore different topics. And of course, the last few years have been years of change for retail, as any time period throughout history has been for retail, but particularly the last decade or so has reframed the way in which retailers look at industrial real estate and how they use different tools to find the industrial real estate that works well for them and their services. Justin talked a little bit about the thought processes now that should go into choosing the perfect spot as far as, say, a distribution center is concerned, like what we discussed with Ollie's in the first segment. The last 10 years, right? That's been some of the most exciting years for us. And I feel like e-commerce is the name for it and what is changing, right? And what is changing is how product is now more widely available direct to consumer. And this is no strange topic for your listeners as we've all tried to contemplate what changes as a result. So I feel like this last 10 years has just been continued iterations through retailers figuring out what is the place for the retail location? What is its purpose? And if people don't have to come to the store to pick up their product, that means you become a warehouser or you work with warehousers. So within the industrial market, that's meant that we've seen supply chains, like in networks have changed, sizes of distribution centers have changed, and even strategies have changed between like a hub and spoke model where you have one large warehouse and products flowing to smaller warehouses and then to the consumer, to people being more geographic and port driven and having multiple medium-sized warehouses. 
And even this last two to three years with final mile or last mile delivery and with delivery times, right? Thinking through how those have changed in the past two to three years from weeks to days to hours in some cases for consumer products and for grocery and food and beverage. All of those have implications for the retailer. All of those filter into industrial in different shapes and sizes. As the back end has increased, that's kind of changed where we have warehouses and how retailers think about that. And right now, I feel like what we're on the cusp of is thinking through what that means to small markets, what that means to suburban markets, and what that means to urban markets for this last mile. And I think we're all now coming through the next kind of round of iterations of thinking through where product is made and how it ultimately gets to those three different kind of markets and how that changes the type of warehouse you might have or the size that you may have. Now, Justin's book, once again, is called Industrial Intelligence, The Executive's Guide for Making Informed Commercial Real Estate Decisions. It is, of course, available at Amazon or wherever else books are sold and, in fact, hit the top 100 in terms of bestsellers in distribution and warehouse management, real estate sales, and manufacturing industry, and has a perfect five-star rating on Amazon. I highly recommend it, but it comes with a number of accolades as well. From industrial real estate as it pertains to retail to a celebration of retail. A little over a year and a half ago, we had the opportunity to speak with Ron Thurston. He's the author of the book Retail Pride, which came out October 2020. Now, his book is, as I mentioned, a celebration of retail, but it also discusses really how to embrace retail as a meaningful career path. And we talked to Ron a little bit about what generated the concept for the book during his own retail career. I've spent, as you've said, a couple of decades, and much of that has been in interviews. Much of it has been hiring, store visits, just sitting, listening, observing, and the journey toward the book was really my continued observation that people in the industry don't always have the pride that they deserve, don't always get that recognition, don't always have the voice of how incredible it is to have a career in retail. And so I actually started a blog several years ago and just tested ideas of how do you feel about working in the industry? Let me write about the industry, write about the people, and culture and just tested some things and learned a ton. And then last year decided to actually make the commitment to get this finished. I would say I was nearly completely done writing the book in March and then went back and added some points around COVID. But the true core of what this is about is really, it's not COVID related and it's not about the future of the industry. This is to celebrate the millions of people that work in it and to recognize it as an incredible career path. Now, if you haven't read the book, Ron interviews a great number of retail executives, retail supervisors, and so forth that either he's worked with or communicated with or just networked with over the years. And we asked him about what it was like to really collaborate with them regarding their love of retail as well. It's so fun because there are people in the book who I've been peers with, friends with, have worked for me. 
And the joy of listening to them kind of quote their favorite parts of retail and leadership and why they love this business and how they've created connections and what they love about serving others, even just collecting that. And this, what's in the book is probably a 10th of what I have on file. I had so much information from people who wanted to talk about their love of this industry. And I wanted to really say, this is not just my story, it's our story as an industry. We're highly collaborative. And the idea that everyone has contributed to the pride of the industry was really important. I think it's actually so much fun to be able to have friends and colleagues quoted in the book. They're very happy about it and I'm really happy to be able to do it. And I actually think there's a whole other book coming that could even take that further, that recognizes all the different levels and all the different kinds of opportunities that we have and hear it from people who have done the work. Once again, the book is called Retail Pride. And one of my favorite things about this book is really what it's become for Ron. He's continued to collect these stories. He's had a number of people reach out to him after publishing the book, which is, of course, is still available wherever books are sold. But currently, Ron is on what he's calling the Great Retail Road Trip. He's traveling the country in an Airstream trailer and finding retail success stories, and he's gathering stories and talking to the people behind those stories. I'm so excited to see what that turns into for Ron once the road trip is complete, but you can follow it all on his website, retailpride.com. Well, we move from Ron Thurston to one of the largest retailers in the country currently, and the fact that they turned into a great success story through metered and modest expansion. We're talking about Home Depot. A book written by Jim Inglis covers the first days of Home Depot. It's called Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. Jim is also the president of Inglis Retailing, but we asked him what the growth of the company was like in terms of Home Depot before he joined and what developments he saw while he was there that kind of indicated to him that Home Depot might be a retail titan in the future. When we opened our stores in Atlanta, about 1984, I guess it was, we branched out and purchased a company called Bowwater. And during that year, we found ourselves in a situation where we thought we may have bit off more than we could chew. And so at that time, the company decided that they would put a speed monitor in place that we would grow our business by 25% a year. And we knew that by doing that, by the year 2000, we would have a thousand stores in the United States. And of course, when you grow at 25% a year, that compounds, that compounds annually. And so you know, by the time I left the company, which was in 96, we were in fact opening over a hundred stores a year. So yes, it was on the average about two stores a week. I wish they were that evenly spaced. They weren't. But the way we did that is we had four distinct divisions of the company, geographical divisions. And so each division was responsible in effect to open 25 stores. And so that's how we managed that kind of rapid growth. But again, the speed limit was 25% per year because that's what we felt we needed in order to develop the systems, to develop the staff, to develop the training, develop the people. 
developed this supply chain that we couldn't get out in front of our skis. And as a result, that 25% guideline was the basic operating rule. We also asked Jim about the title of the book, talked to him a little bit about the bleeding orange culture, and basically proposed the question to him this way. For someone that's never worked at Home Depot, how would he describe the culture there, which was strong enough that he ended up writing a book about it? The culture really starts with a servant leadership. And the servant leadership is going to set certain values. They're going to demonstrate certain behavior. And that behavior, when it's consistent, helps develop that culture. And the culture defines a mission. And that mission becomes something that the staff can grasp onto, that the associates can take ownership for. And that mission at Home Depot was customer service, but delighting the customer. And as a result, the company decentralized its structure so that there was responsibility, there was delegation, and there was ownership at the local level to always put that customer first and to be able to make decisions at the local level. And in order to do that, you have to not just train your staff in terms of how to do the job, but you have to educate them as to the why of the job. And once they understand the why, then you can have confidence to give them that authority to make those local decisions, to do whatever it takes to maintain the right relationship with your customer. The mantra has to be, we will give the customer no reason to ever shop elsewhere. And you have to establish that mantra and then give the authority to the associates to accept ownership for that customer-centric policy. Now, Jim's book, as with all the others we've discussed today, available on Amazon, checks in over 400 pages long. I absolutely loved it. And it's one of the retail books that I certainly recommend to anyone that's asked me about a potential recommendation for a retail history book, at least a modern retail history book. Speaking of recommendations, I did just want to finish up with one of my own, and we can't talk to the author because, unfortunately, the author is deceased, but it's a book by Sam Walton. It's called Sam Walton Made in America. It's Sam Walton with John Huey also contributing. The book was published the same year as Sam Walton's death, which is 1992, but I think it provides an excellent historical insight into his mindset, into his thought processes surrounding the expansion and the building of Walmart into what it is that we know today. And one quick shout out I want to give to listener Duncan. I apologize because he sent me an email with a book recommendation quite a while ago. It was in a spam folder, a promotions folder, whatever. And I found it just this week when I was researching for this episode talking about retail books. But he sent me a recommendation called The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon. Really breaks down the changes in living standards from 1870 to 1970. Now, Duncan knows I enjoy American history, especially American economic and retail history, so did want to pass along his recommendation, and I ordered the book on Amazon this week, so we'll find out what it's all about here coming up, but do want to thank him for sending in that recommendation. Coming up after this, we'll have our Looking Ahead segment, and we'll close out the show.
As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. the final segment of the Retail Focus podcast. A couple of stories that we're looking ahead to this week. One, very briefly, just wanted to touch on as Walmart, as well as Sam's Club, has filed a lawsuit that claims that BJ's Wholesale Club has apparently stolen technology. This technology, they say, is similar to Sam's Club's Scan and Go technology. This is the technology that customers can leverage to scan products into their cart as they go around the store allows them to avoid the checkout on the front end. But this lawsuit alleges something pretty severe, basically saying that BJ's version of this, which was launched in late 2021, is, and I quote, an apparent copy of Sam's Club's Scan and Go, merely changing the in-app colors and changing the name from Scan and Go to Express Pay. And of course, they're saying that BJ's has infringed on patent rights that Walmart holds towards this, and has caused damages and harm. So that's pretty typical for such a lawsuit to claim those things, but certainly that's pretty direct language as far as BJ's is concerned. No comment from BJ's in the most recent news stories surrounding this, and it's going to be a while before anything shakes out, but certainly something to keep an eye on, and you wonder if BJ's is maybe working on a backup program kind of behind the scenes just in case they're forced to cease and desist more or less use of their express pay platform anxious to see how it all shakes out but as Leighton is fond of saying oftentimes the only winners in a lawsuit like this is the lawyers because the lawyers will be cashing in regardless of the outcome now a bigger story that we're looking ahead to directly over the next couple of months and really for the next six months is Macy's is expanding the overall footprint of their backstage stores especially their store within a store concept. They're adding 36 additional locations throughout the course of April and May. These stores going to be anywhere between 11,000 and 18,000 square feet all throughout the country. You look at the locations that are opening up, New York, California, Utah, Florida, like I said, all over the place. Fargo, North Dakota even is reflected on this list of openings in Analysts have worried in the past about cannibalism for the full-price Macy's products when they open the store within a store concepts, but Macy's has been on record and has constantly stated that customers shopping at both in the store within a store concept generally spend more over a certain time period, whether that's per year or per visit, than customers that just shop full-price Macy's products. So they see it as a way to add to basket size and potentially drive traffic. And that's one of the reasons why they're increasing their store within a store footprint for Backstage by over 10% here over the next couple of months. But you wonder if analyst concerns about substitute goods for the full price shoppers might be more relevant in an inflationary environment. If you walk into a Macy's and you're worried about pricing, if you're a little more price sensitive, Maybe you veer towards that backstage section a little bit quicker before looking at the full price products. But Macy's is banking on these stores, I think, being a traffic driver more than anything. And they're also using square footage they've already got in their massive stores. So it's not like they're adding to their rent costs at all. 
They're basically just reutilizing this square footage. And I think most people would agree, oftentimes Macy's stores seem to have a little more in terms of square footage than they actually need. So you could argue, hey, good use for square footage, also going to be a traffic driver in an inflationary environment, potentially for those customers that are a little more price sensitive or even value savvy, if you want to put it that way. So ultimately, a couple of different ways things can go here for Macy's. Macy's is in need of something to move the needle, though, because I think stagnation is certainly one word you think of when you think of the Macy's store chain over the last five to six years. You've seen endeavors go by the wayside. You've seen various different initiatives at Macy's to try and drum up sales. So this is just another one in that line, although I personally think this is one that might have a little bit of sticking power. I'll be certainly anxious to see if they mention any cannibalization effects at the pressing of analysts here over the next five to six months or so, especially as we start to see a little bit more clarity, ideally, on the inflation front, although I think one could argue that there's never really that type of clarity as regards inflation going forward. Well, that'll do it for this week's show. Once again, want to thank McKenna and Layton for doing work behind the scenes for us. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. Next week, we'll be joined by Joe Fish. He is the CEO of Wine Access, and he'll talk a little bit about subscription-based retail, something that oftentimes overlooked by most retail media, but we're going to talk about dynamics of subscription-based retail and the role education plays in that form of retail as well. So until then, I hope you have a great seven days and we'll be back with you then. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.